You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. You know, we are the undrowned when we feel our feelings, when we breathe through the unbreathable, we are undrowning in that process. But absolutely, our, our precedent, our kin in that are all of the marine mammals, but our ancestors who survived the transatlantic trade and our kin who are now surviving in all kinds of circumstances, the experience of crossing through water. And it it is important. This podcast explores the mystery of relatedness as an organizing principle of the universe and of our lives. We are trying to catch a glimpse of connections beyond color, continent, country, or kinship through science, mysticism, spirituality, and the creative arts. I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes, and this is The Cosmic We. Alexis Pauline Gums is a queer, Black troublemaker and Black feminist love evangelist, an aspirational cousin to all sentient beings. Her work in this lifetime is to facilitate infinite, unstoppable ancestral love in practice. Her poetic work is in response to the needs of her cherished communities and she has held space for multitudes in mourning and in movement. You graduated from Barnard in 2004, and you hold a PhD in English, African and African-American studies and women and gender studies from Duke. Welcome again. Oh, it is such a joy to be here. Even though we are doing this virtually, I still I still feel I'm inside of you all's heart radius, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, likewise, Alexis, we feel the love beaming over here, too. So we just thank you for just being with us today. It's an honor. One of the the things I'm really curious about is, you know, oftentimes as as I started to explore some of your work and and poetry, there's a sense of of depthness and uh, connectedness to the past, to the present. And it made me wonder... Was there or uh, what kind of spiritual influence that there may have been in your early formative years that kind of helped build a foundation for your passion and what you do today? Oh, wow. What a beautiful question. I do think there's something there that is is beyond age, which is why I'm so excited that that people of different ages can can get into it. I think there's something vibrational happening, something aligned with how Dr. Holmes has written about string theory, the strings, the strings are being plucked, or maybe I'm just one of the strings being plucked, you know, like that, that, um, that may be what's happening. And so, yes, there's definitely a spirituality to all of it. I was raised by people who believe very strongly in daily practice. When, when you asked about early influences, I thought about this plaque that my mother had on the wall and she still has it. And it just says, you are loved. And it's so interesting because I didn't 
consciously remember that plaque. And someone asked me, you know, what, what my purpose was and what I was here for. And I was like, I just want everyone to really know that they are loved. And then I was looking through old pictures and I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> message received. And I feel that there, there is an aspirational sound and physical space that my mother especially created for me from forever. She talks about speaking with me when I was, when she was holding me in her womb and just saying like, you're going to be someone who makes a great contribution to society. You're going to be someone who brings good things to this planet. And that matters. I think that that matters. There's a faith there that is profound and that I'm so grateful for. And my father also, who he would be emphatic about pointing out who became a poet after I became a poet, because I became a poet at, at a very young age, very soon after I learned how to read. But he would write us praise poems, you know, for all of his children and for my mom and for his mom. And, and just, I actually think I started doing that first too, because I wrote a praise poem for him when I was very young. But there, there was something about the honoring of who we are beyond the moment that we're in now, even though it's so exciting to be present with each other in this particular moment, but honoring that there's something eternal within each of us that is to be honored. So I would say that, that that's, the, that's the grounding spirituality. I also thought of something that my, my father would say because the first church that I went to was an Episcopal church in New Jersey. And I thought that was because my mom was born in England and there was like an Anglican tie-in. But when I actually asked about it, my dad was like, oh no, we went there because of you, because you had heard it. I just loved school. And I had heard at school that some people went to Sunday school. And I was like, there's more school? <laughs> you can't get enough school. I don't remember this. <laughs> right. I just went to more school. And I was like, well, how come I don't get to go to a Sunday school? And they were like, well, we have to be at a church for you to have. So evidently, I, I was the impetus for them to join that church, which, which um, I didn't realize until I was an adult and asked about it. So I would say that my parents were more engaged in that spiritual, cosmic, creative energy, then very tied to organized religion early in my childhood. And they were committed to it in a way that was specific, and that included daily practices, and that included rigorous affirmation. So it really did provide a structure for my being. I'm going to be asking you a number of questions about Undrowned just simply because I am fascinated I have read it twice already, oh, wow. and I'm going to read it many more times. So I'll ask you a bit about that. But when you say you became a poet as a child, is this uh, ancestral whispering? Is this uh, mothers and other mothers in the community? What is it? Where's the resource, that deep well that that comes from as a child? Mm-hmm. There must be, there must have been some ancestral whispering. I know there is now, you know, whenever I write now, there's definitely ancestral whispering there. My parents do mention that they got me children's books of poetry by Sonia Sanchez and by Nikki Giovanni and, you know, by the, by the great, the great lovers of our people. But I do think that there was something because I felt so called to it. And the way that I can describe it is there was just something in the people because, because my first poems were all praise poems about people in my life. You know, the sound of my grandfather's voice, 
my father's eyes, the way that they looked, you know, there were these things that I was like, this is so maybe impossible to describe, but there has to be some way, you know, like I, I felt that I needed to, I really needed to celebrate them beyond just saying, I think your voice is really powerful, you know? So I, I think that is a part of my calling and it, it was something that was irrepressible. I published my first little book, you know, colored pencils and pieces of paper that I taped about my grandfather and, and unicorns. And yeah, Ooh. I think I think I just knew I had to do it. So I, I do think it's an assignment that I came with or I heard very early on. Mm. Sitting with that for a moment, grandfathers and unicorns. Yes. <laughs> the magic in our lives. Yeah. Right. Tell me a little bit about your uh, grandmother, Lydia. Mm-hmm. Ah, my grandmother, Lydia. Lydia Gums, um, originally Lydia Gibbs. She's, she's so many things to me. So she, she is my grandmother, which in itself is everything. She's the person who would make the voices for the bath puppets. You know, <laughs> she, she was the person who would encourage me to join the clean plate club by like eating, eating my food. You know, she's a a tangible, nurturing person in my life. And she was this incredible community builder. She was this person who would see a need in her community and be like, we can fill it. And I can't even list all of the things that she founded, you know, in the different communities that were important to her because it's like, they got the beautification club, there needs to be flowers, the mental health association, because we need, you know, we need our healing. She was the daughter and sister of people who passed away in mental institutions. And so she mm. was somebody who was very passionate about the healing that we needed in our community. And when she thought about her community, she was especially thinking about, about Black folks and folks of Caribbean ancestry, which at the time, and maybe even still today, there was so much silence about mental health. And so she is all of those things. She was somebody, she designed the revolutionary Anguillian flag, which is the three dolphins. And I'm, I'm here in Anguilla. Unexpectedly, I didn't realize I would be in Anguilla when we were having this conversation. Lucky um, you. I am so blessed to be here. <laughs> and she absolutely was a visionary. And for me, I think that she really opened an ancestral door for me because she was the first person who I loved, who transitioned and, and passed over to the other side. And there was no question for me that our conversation would continue. It was not a question of if, it was just a question of how. And I'm really grateful that I had poetry and she was someone who really valued my poetry. You know, she would say, this is my granddaughter, the poet. And she would tell me like, you're gonna win a Pulitzer Prize one day. She was like, if you don't know it, I know it. You know, she held that kind of huge vision. And so it was poetry that I turned to. It was her physical artifacts that I turned to her passports, her glasses, her mirrors. I usually, if I hadn't just gotten off the beach, I usually wear her turquoise necklace on my heart because I actually created an ancestral practice or else remembered an ancestral practice in order to be diligent about our relationship and the fact that it is something that is, is ongoing and our communication is ongoing. And I think that those sets of practices are still the practices 
that are at the core of all of my work and that make it possible for me to intentionally listen for the messages from Audre Lorde, listen for the messages from our other ancestors who I didn't have a relationship with, close relationship like I had with my grandmother in this realm, but who are absolutely, I'm, I'm listening for them. I'm just always listening. Very quick before we move on, Alexis, you, you mentioned your grandmother and I, I heard in one of your previous interviews, um, you spoke about your grandfather mm-hmm. um, and his role and not only his role, but probably her role, of course, in the revolution there in Anguilla. Could you speak a little bit more about his influence? Uh, it sounds like your grandparents had such a tremendous influence in much of how you um, mirror love and mirror uh, your voice and activism today, it seems like they played a major role in what they did historically there. Could you tell us a little bit more about your grandfather too? Absolutely. And they did. They had such a huge influence on me. I would just come sit. I would come here to Anguilla and I would just sit with them and ask them a million questions, um, especially about the revolution. So my grandfather's role in the Anguillian Revolution was really that of a of a spokesperson in a way for Anguilla. And so Anguilla, very small island, about 36 square miles, seceded from the British Empire. And that was like, what? You know, it was it was something that was that was unheard of. The New York Times represented it as like the mouse and the elephant, you know, like just this complete different scales of power. But the thing is that the Anguillian people believed that their power mattered and they had a referendum and they decided to secede. And it was my grandfather who spoke at the UN about Anguilla and and what, what was going to happen from then on. Part of the consequences of that was that he was put by the British on a list of people to shoot on sight when they invaded Anguilla. And the Anguillian revolution was in 1967 and its resolution is interesting and it has a lot of class implications because Anguilla is now again part of the British Empire. It's a, it's a British dependency. The major difference is that it's direct dependency as opposed to being part of this consortium of three islands, St. Kitts, Nevis and Anguilla were grouped together even though geographically they're not very close to each, to each other in the Caribbean just for the expedience of the British government basically at that time. And I will say for my grandparents, it was it was actually full freedom and autonomy that they believed in and were working towards. And they were not happy with the resolution. And the royal family visited Anguilla at some point. My grandfather literally didn't leave the house so that it would not be mistaken that he was greeting um, the colonizers, right? So he, he has... A, um, They both had a strong analysis of colonialism and what it meant, and that has very much influenced me. But even though now the Anguillian flag has the Union Jack in the corner, it also has the revolutionary seal of the three dolphins that that my grandmother designed. I would also say it's important that my grandfather helped found the library here in Anguilla. He supported the schools. He spent 18 years without coming back to Anguilla in the United States, just sending and sending and sending supplies. And then when he came back, he says he basically like bought out a Barnes and Noble and brought like all, all the books to Anguilla. And that ended up being the, the first foundation of the of the library here. And there's still a portrait of him in the in the library there today, which which I am very proud 
to get to see. What an amazing legacy. You you have his warrior spirit. <laughs> yeah. I think so. <laughs> As you described, so. troublemaker, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, tr- I come by it honestly. That's right. <laughs> Good trouble, as John Lewis would say. Yes, yes. There's a section in one of your poems, uh, Remembering, mm-hmm. in Dub. Yeah. And when I was reading it, I read it out loud. Mm. Um, many times when I'm reading, it, I read silently, but I decided intentionally, Alexis, to read some of your poetry out loud, and it literally resonated on a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would love to get your your interpretation, your 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 commentary on your work. And I want to read this. I want to read this section if I can, really quickly. Oh, I love that. And it's it's section. Um, it's it starts the way. Some of us were here because we were stuck. Some of us were here because we were stuck on believing other people needed us in order to get unstuck. Some of us were here for the water, just for the look of it, not for the need of it. Some of us were here for the pleasure, heightened by the pain of suffering, activated by the unavoidable repetition. Some of us were here for others of us, just to see them again in form, just to form them again in seeing them. Some of us were here for no reason. It was completely unreasonable for us to be here. Some of us were here for our own names, to reclaim them. Some of us were here to repay something that couldn't be repaid. Some of us were here to get laid and get the rest of us here. Some of us couldn't be bothered. Some of us were here to be mothered and fathered better than what happened or more. Some of us were not really here, but just seemed to be. We were the ones guarding the door. You came here because we called you. You called you, the you that was us before. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, thank you for reading that. And that's another honor. I, I love it when people read read the work out loud. I have an aunt here, my aunt Una, who is a, a retired opera singer, and she says she sings it. You know, that that's that's how she relates to my work. And I'm like, ah, oh, it is. It is all vibrational. What would I say about that piece? I mean, the the reason that that section is called remembering is I really felt that that entire experience was listening, you know, and remembering and remembering why am I here? You know, like how, how did this happen? And it is a calling, you know, there are so many different reasons and ways that we come into this realm and we're part of all of it, right? So it's us calling us to be here for some desire that we might name in different ways, you know, to reclaim our names as as one of them, just to be with the water, for the pleasure, for the connection to specific other energies, you know, all, all of, I mean, I think for most of us, it's all of those reasons, right? But I think what I remembered while I was writing that was that all of it is happening at the same time. So we are holding the door open for the energy that needs to come through. And we are the energy coming through and the door is there open for us. You know, I, I needed to remember that. And I, I do think that's a, that's another name for love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The open door, the energy coming through. Mm. Wonderful. In your um, 
in your in your work dubs in the beginning you you reference a lot about Sylvia Winter's work mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. Uh, as influence. Could you speak a little bit more about how Sylvia, as a Jamaican poet herself from the Caribbean, mm-hmm. yes. played a role in? And speak a little bit for those who don't even really understand the concept of dub. Could you help uh, interpret that uh, and where that reference comes from and how that applies to the remixing? <laughs> yes, yes, <of> work. yes. <laughs> yeah, dub, dub is for Sylvia Winter and, you know, that W <laughs> at the beginning of her name. Um, it is dub as a as a form is many things. So dub poetry in Jamaica and I have to, you know, shout out my own Jamaican ancestry. My mom is Jamaican and and. Um, Ah, Jamaica is so important. It's so important for so many reasons. And uh, for sure, in the Arawak cosmology, very important place. And dub poetry is a transformative tradition. It is poetry that really emphasizes the possibility of vibrational transformation through sound. The sound is so important, which is why, you know, when you read my poems out loud, I'm like, yes, you know, because the sound is so important. And it is in relationship with the sound of the drum. It's this, it's this bass sound that is important. And it's also important to the way that Jamaican musical traditions have proliferated through there being a dub, a particular rhythm, and then people making different choices on top of that, but having that same ground to stand on. So being profoundly in relationship. And there are incredible folks throughout Jamaican diaspora who have come through dub poetic traditions and who ha- think about it as a whole aesthetic. You know, there's dub theater now, there's whole dub organizations, like youth organizations in Toronto. For some reason, I'm actually forgetting the name of a incredible artist who I'm a big fan of, who has articulated these dub aesthetics so well. And for me, it is, the way that I write would not necessarily be like, oh, this is dub poetry, unless I decided to <laughs> explicitly attach it to dub poetry, which I have decided to explicitly do. But it is the same. It is rhythmic. It is about listening to each other. It is about the community accountable um, care for how do you feel? You know, like what happens when you engage this poetry the collectivism of it, you know, all, all of those things are are why dub is so important to me and a huge inspiration for, for everything I do, but in particular th- that work. And then Sylvia Winter is such an amazing person and she's 97 years old. She is this profound being, right? So she is a writer of theater, of novels, of poetry, of the best, I would say, critical history of science that I had access to when I was in graduate school. And she, you know, as I say in the introduction to Dub, she learned all the languages of colonialism in order to really get at what is the pattern of thought that made that possible to happen? And how can we have a different pattern of thought? How can we have a pattern a pattern of thought that is loving? And so I see it as, you know, so, so connected to the work that you all that you all do. And for me, she has inspired the way that I think about everything, the way that I think about thought, the way that I think about science. But what the repetitive practice and what the listening to Sylvia Winter darkly did 
for me and to me was really get into the tangled stories that I have, that are stories, you know, and that I have to be responsible for because they're not the only way I could tell the story. You know, the story of what it means to be an Anguillian granddaughter. There's infinite ways to tell that story. And Dub tries to reckon with that infinity, even though it's a finite number of pages, so it's not infinite, but it, it reckons with that infinity and what it's what it's doing to me. Well, I mean, that's interesting because, I mean, you, you do give insight, um, really building on the work of, of Sylvia Winter, that these narratives, these even our ancestral stories or the stories of what has been or the traditions that we are raised in, that maybe those stories are not the story. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe those stories can be reimagined or reworked or reconsidered. And uh, just that change in perspective, just that questioning opens up an infinite <laughs> an infinite ground of, of possibility of problem solving, of reconciliation, of reflection, right? And as you you say, reflecting love, it gives a, a, the ability to look back even compassionately on things that may have injured us in, in ways that we may have had only one way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, but just that reinterpretation is a, is a powerful tool um, that we could uh, have in our toolkit. So, yeah, I mean, it was just a, a just fascinating way of, you know, taking a look at the work there. Yeah, I thank you. And I'll I'll say, I think that part of the technology that I was learning by writing that was that sometimes a story I have that I'm attached to is blocking me from listening. It's in in the Mm. way of me being able to actually listen to something else that's there. And so there's a there's a clearing that's happened. And I remembered her name, (laughs) D.B. Young, Anita Africa. If people want to learn about contemporary dub aesthetics, that is Mm. she is a person to to look for. But if you look up dub theater, you, you find her name anyway, anyway, because she has done so much, so much for the culture. Join us for a series of free virtual sit meditations each Friday from February 16th through March 29th. Each meditation will be broadcast on YouTube at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Register to receive customized emails each week to guide your practice this season. Learn more at cac.org slash lent dash sit. That's cac.org slash l-e-n-t dash s-i-t. Your book, Undrowned, Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals, a series of meditations based on uh, marine animals in a environment of rising ocean levels. Your book is part of Adrienne Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy series. And this is what Adrienne Marie Brown says. I know you know what it is, (laughs) but I want my audience to hear this. She says, Alexis is leading us through oceans, inviting us to grab onto her fin as she takes us deep and teaches us how and when to breathe, how to handle the pressure of depth and where to leap and catch the sun's light. 
Where were the seeds of undrowned planted? And who are the undrowned? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I love that question. First of all, just love and gratitude to Adrienne, my dear beloved sister and comrade. I love her so much. And we've, we've been in this together for more than 20 years at this point. And she is the person who first who first introduced me to your work, Dr. Holmes, with the idea of the, of the heart radius. And there were actually years where we would be in space together and I'd be like, Adrian, tell us again. Tell us again what Dr. Holmes said about the the heart radius. It shifted everything. That concept shifted everything. And so, so, and then I was so happy to read your work and continue to follow it. Um, So thank you, Adrian, because the seed of this moment is in the Adrian sharing. And the seeds of undrowned, I think the true seed, I don't know, you know, there's always a before, before. When I think about the origin of anything, but also the origin of of my own work. But I know that I started listening to whales, the sounds of whales. And I started to, I mean, there's an incredible story about how I got these guidebooks um, about marine mammals. And that's part of the origin story. But really, I think it was the experience of grief when my father passed away, that was the impetus for me to need an ocean, a whole ocean of holding and and for me to learn something different about my breathing and for me to learn how to be fully immersed in salt because I was actually just crying that much, you know, and and it it didn't, um, it's interesting that I talked about the impetus of my grandmother and the ancestral practice, and then the impetus of my father, it was important for me to understand that I could breathe through it and that I could swim in it and that there was something, there was actually another depth of being myself that was possible if I would allow Mm. myself to feel what I was feeling and not avoid it. And so I looked and I was like, this is what marine mammals do. Like they are in it and they have lungs just like I have lungs and they need to breathe air just like I need to breathe air. And yet they navigate this salt and with grace, you know, and with beauty and with ferocity. And I just decided to become an apprentice. I was like, I need to learn this. I need to learn from this example of grace that is accessible to me because I can, I can see it and I can read about it and I can be a, a witness so I would say that, that that was the seed, the decision that I had to feel what I was feeling when I was feeling something that was totally overwhelming to me and beyond anything I had felt before. And then what happened was I went to the Pacific Ocean for a vacation, stayed in a random hotel that worked with my miles and frequent flyer points or something, and ended up being right next to the Aquarium of the Pacific, which is which was having a, a digital exhibition on whale sounds. And it was also next to the Queen Mary, which is this, it's really a tourist attraction, but it's a replica of this boat, happens to be the boat that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother migrated to the United States on. And so wow. I was like, okay, you know, you have this inkling that you're supposed to be engaging deeper <laughs> with the ocean. And then, then the universe is just like, well, don't ignore it. We're going to just put it. 
right in front of your face in as many ways as, as we can. And so who are the undrowned? You know, we are the undrowned when we feel our feelings, when we breathe through the unbreathable, we are undrowning in that process. But absolutely our, our precedent, our kin in that are all of the marine mammals, but our ancestors who survived the transatlantic trade and our kin who are now surviving in all kinds of circumstances, the experience of crossing through water. And it, it is important. You know, I, I mentioned in, in Dub Boda, who is, who is my ancestor who survived transatlantic trade, who came here to Anguilla. And it is something that I know, speaking of remembering, that our ancestors were accompanied in that journey and that there was a companionship with the marine mammals, with the whales who were in many cases hunted by these same ships. There was something that happened. And I strongly believe that there was something that happened in terms of breathing and remembering our blowholes. People can't see it when they're listening, but I'm touching the top of my head, the crown chakra area, the ones who did not complete that journey. Our ancestors who became part of the ocean are absolutely a part of it. And our ancestors who did complete that journey must have had to learn something different about breathing in order to continue breathing past that point. That's what I know. And knowing that is horrifying. It's heartbreaking. It is also how I know I can be stronger than I think I can be. It is also a source of strength for me. And it is also something that contributes to how deeply I believe in us, the descendants of the people who survived that and our kin, all beings who are kin, because we all have a relationship to that experience. That is an example, a profound example of what it means to breathe. And I believe that every breath that's taken by every animal, by every plant, every breath that is taken on this planet is connected to that breathing. And so deeply resounds with where we are today, because in most of the executions of African-Americans in the streets by police officers, many of them have said, I can't breathe. And so this meditation that you have written just gives us an opportunity to think about breathing in another way. Yes. In a deeper way, in a more loving way, in a more self-sustaining way in a more spiritual way. So, I mean, that that's just breathtaking. I, I want to ask you about the gray whale story because it ties mm. in to what you just said and it's such a stunning story. Could you share with our listeners what you write about the gray whales? Gray whales are world shapers. The only large whale to feed on sediment on the bottom of the ocean they leave massive trails on the underwater surface of the earth. They dig up nutrients that feed whole ecosystems. And they have been missing from the Atlantic Ocean since the end of the transatlantic slave trade. What happened? <laughs> 
Marine biologists say it is still a mystery why the Atlantic population of gray whales went extinct. Is it possible that whalers on enslaving ships killed gray whales and didn't report it? Was there already a smaller population of gray whales than they had thought? Miscalculation and underdocumentation are the theories so far, and no one mentions the timing of the transatlantic slave trade as relevant to the extinction of Atlantic gray whales, but me, and maybe others like me who can't help but think of slavery and our kin. I'll stop there because I don't I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to take all the time, but there's this there's this question of um, of whether this is a refusal on the part of the of the gray whales, of whether there is a solidarity there. But what we know for sure is because these are filter feeders who are at the bottom of the ocean processing the sediment into energy for the entire ecosystem, part of that sediment that they processed are in fact the bones of the people who died and were thrown overboard or who jumped overboard during the transatlantic slave trade. So we know that there's an intimate relationship, whether the things that I might project onto it about solidarity and, and you know choice love it. are relevant. They may or may not be, but physically, there is a relationship that is there. And I also mentioned that recently, and it actually has happened again since, since the book was published, gray whales have been sighted again in the Atlantic. And scientists are still like, what is it? Is it is, are they Pacific gray whales that are changing their migration patterns? Is it Was it a change in migration pattern to begin with? And it, there's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's all in the realm of theory at this point. But there's something there, you know, like there, if, if a huge animal like this can disappear from the whole Atlantic Ocean, right, or at least be undetectable in the whole Atlantic Ocean, right, and then return, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean for all of us who have been displaced? What does it mean right. for indigenous reclamation of land masses? What does it mean for anything that we in our individual lives feel like is impossible or gone or lost forever. There's a sense of that which is impossible can be made possible. There's a sense that narratives that were once believed to be firm and unchangeable, those narratives have the potential to be changed or renewed. Mm-hmm. No, thank you for that. I think there's, for me, Alexis, there's so much of that work, your piece there, it, it really helps those of us who may have been foreign to that concept, that there is this cosmic connection, this intimacy. It creates a consciousness and an awareness that we we need one another. And uh, when you speak about the breath, it kind of, it, it gave me a sense of just the essence of life, right? Mm. And to become more aware of that. Um, you know, you're, you're giving us more grounding to be able to sense that in, in everything in life and not just in our own small sphere of influence. So thank you for mm. that. Thank it also you. remind me that transformation requires community. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so, yes. yeah, yeah. As you know, the filter feeders are transforming the purportedly lost folk into mermaids and into themselves, Mm -hmm. and that they return during the year of returns in 2019. Absolutely. There's something there, Alexis. (laughs) There is something there. I agree. 
I agree. There's so much there. Yes. And it's wonderful that you invite us to explore that with you. Um, I, I want to ask you about listening darkly. Mm. You talk about listening darkly. And that ties into the practices that, for me anyway, that um, that you use yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it mean to listen darkly? Oh, I love that. And that's such a, that's such a profound question coming from you, especially um, someone who, who has taught me so much about about the dark and um, the generativity of it, my practices start in the dark. So I, I wake up when it's still dark and listen. That's that's my that's the easiest way to describe what is my daily practice. Wake up in the dark and listen. So I'm I am listening darkly um, to darkness. You know, I I think that. The darkness, I mean, the way you write about it, the way that Audre Lorde writes about, you know, I am Black become I, because I come from the earth's inside and that yes. deep, dark, erotic knowing that she invites us into also is it. I'm, I'm listening in a way that is about tapping into that nurturing and that possibility and potential. I also feel listening darkly. I mean, it's interesting because right now, I'm in the midst of who knows what will come of this, but I'm in the midst of um, looking at the sky more specifically and learning about the sky stories and constellation names and looking at the sky practices, um, Arawak and Carib people from from this region where I am right now in in Anguilla and through the Caribbean and, and South America. And the other thing that has to happen for me to listen darkly is I'm, I'm listening through so much, you know, like I'm listening through loss. I'm listening through documentation and interpretation by colonizing naturalists who collect the stories and then they've had to be reclaimed by, you know, the scholars who, who I'm reading now to research about them. And I think when I heard you just say listening darkly, I thought about that too. I'm listening for, it's almost as if the recorded history, and this is similar to what happened with me with the with the guidebooks and the research about the marine mammals. It's as if the recorded history are the stars and I have to, one, get past their, <laughs> get past their brilliance, but also... Right really look at what is in between and what is holding it together and what is it in response to and what is not explicitly there for me to, you know, track as a researcher that I have to hear. And so then how do I hear that? It's that deeper listening, listening darkly that allows me to answer the question, what am I supposed to learn from these ancestors who did not leave a reliable record for me except that they did, right? You know, I get it. You know, except that it's there. It's just not there in, you know, as, as you have taught us so much about, it's not there in the enlightenment forms. It's not there in the linear quote unquote facts, but it is very much there and I'm listening for it. And I do think that the repetition is important for that. I think that there are certain things that you can Google and then there are certain things that you have mm-hmm. to listen every day. You have to wait. You know, you have to just be confused. You have to, you know, like all, all of those things. And yeah. 
I, that's how I listen. I, I listen every day. I listen not having any idea. I even often write not knowing what I'm going to learn from what I wrote, you know, until sure. and, until later. Um, all of that to me resonates with what, what you say about listening darkly. Yeah, I mean, I think about Harriet Tubman, and they always say she was following the North Star for direction and mm. getting from one place to another. But more likely than not, she was listening darkly. Yes. She'd had a head injury. She used to pass out and come to with a new path. Mm-hmm. She was listening darkly. And many of us um, have been educated by colonizers to forget all of that. Yes. And the true path to self and the genuine within us is through listening. Absolutely. Listening. Absolutely. I don't think there, I think that there's something I love that you, that you bring Harriet Tubman. Cause I've actually been also thinking about her today. Like if she was simply just navigating well, you know, like it's a good mm-hmm. navigator, yeah. that's not the same as being untrackable. That's not the same as being untraceable. That doesn't give you a way to do impossible things. It was impossible. It was impossible what she was doing all the time. And that means that it was unpredictable. It was nonlinear. That means that exactly as you just said, she had to trust that deeper knowing. And I, I do feel that her head injury, I do feel that her trust in her own dreams, I do feel that that was uh, absolutely a part of it. She had faith in that. Yeah. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. As we're closing out our, our, our just amazing conversation, um, there's something you say in um, uh, in uh, Undrowned. What I'd like you to do is, if you were able to address the next generation coming up, what what would you tell them, given what they're going to encounter? Given the strength of their past, what what would you say to the next generation? Hmm. Really, I would say what my mother said to me: "You are loved. You are loved, and the door is held open for you. You know all the energy that you are bringing through, and I know. You know, I know the." The, there's already a generation <laughs> below me articulate enough to say that they feel really uh, the message that they're getting from what previous generations have done around the environment, have done economically, have done socially, is actually making them feel the opposite of that. Not loved, not invited, not embraced. You know, it's important, therefore, that we say as many times as we can and we also prove with the bravery of our action, with how honest we push ourselves to be with our own selves and, and with each other, that they are loved. The energy that they are bringing through, whatever it is, it is like all that happened, all that ever, ever, ever happened, happened so that they could bring that energy through. You know, Ashay. <laughs> There's just multitudes of love. That's all. That's all. That there multitudes. Is. We are so thankful for your great gift that you are sharing. Oh. Um, you are inspiring me and many generations. Thank you so much, Alexis. Oh, thank you, you Alexis. Are, 
You're such an inspiration to me. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this miracle. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to leave you with a few reflections from our interview with Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. Yeah, uh, in this podcast, what we're trying to do is find the cosmic community, the unity, um, the community as one. And what Dr. Gums does is she relates to the inability of BIPOC or black and brown bodies to breathe in current circumstances where there are repetitions of police violence. And so the mantra has become, I can't breathe. And what Alexis does is she says, maybe we need to do an apprenticeship with marine mammals who do know how to breathe through unbreathable circumstances, through salt, through death, through loss, a baptism, of tears, a baptism of breath. Yes, Dr. B, she does make that connection with marine mammals and she makes a correlation with the undrowned of the ancestral slaves from the transatlantic slave trade. And she makes a correlation and she says that we are kin with the ancestors who survived in addition to being kin with marine mammals. And not only are we kin to those who experience brokenness and loss yet have survived. But to bring breath full circle, we are also kin to those who experience life. And so the breathing is not only a breathing of excel, of grief and pain, but it's also a transformational breathing, a transformational experience of being able to continue to live out truth, to live out love, and to reflect the fullness of life. So also remember that whether you feel it or not, you are loved. That's a cosmic reality. If no one's told you today or ever, you are loved. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.